frightening history was recorded by the triage nurse and entered into the Meditech system, the Meditech system deleted ominous history, the most germane portions of the patient's complaints, specifically deleted with Rebecca's foreboding history. I do not know what's wrong with me. I feel like my heart is not beating right. I feel like I'm going to die. Hello and welcome. Rick Bucata, July Risk Management Monthly, coming to you. Uh, Greg is on vacation this month up at his uh, little, uh, what they call camps uh, in uh, upper uh, Michigan. He's there for the month, gets no internet service. So uh, he's out. But I've got John Schufeld with us. John uh, did a tape with us uh, not too long ago and um, I brought him back. For those of you who missed it, John is uh, MDJD uh, MBA. He uh, basically has some education issues in terms of <laughs> an addiction. To among, other, among other issues. <laughs> and uh, Rachel's back. Rachel, hello. Uh, you were uh, on vacation when I was uh, in, in uh, San Diego or vice versa. We were down there. We, we crossed each other's paths down there. That's right. I was hoping for an invite over, and I guess I mistimed it. But I would next time, <laughs> I would have loved it. You could have gone to a faculty dinner. Well, we got a, a fair amount of stuff here, so let's get started. Uh, first one. So this one is entitled "What are the risk management issues associated with bed and nursing shortages?" I think there's probably plenty. Um, in any case, this came from Steve Barnes and Gary Van Oker. Uh, they wanted to discuss these issues. They uh, seem seems the risks are pretty obvious. Yeah, I, I I would say so. Do plaintiff attorneys ever make the assertion that the staff was way over its head regarding capacity, and that's a major factor in the mistake that occurred? Ever heard of that that John that saying you you were just overwhelmed and that's why this mistake happened. I, hopefully, no defense attorney will let their client say that in deposition, and hopefully no one's ever charted that. I mean, there's ways to chart things that don't are so obvious. And also, if anybody's doing their really due diligence on the case, it's going to come out that, you know, you had 36 holds and, you know, only three out of five nurses were working. And that'll all come out. But I would suggest that no one should chart that and no one should say it in a deposition. I think Dusty, Dusty uh, maybe that's what yeah, you're going to say. Yeah, right? Well, mentioned that too about th not throwing uh, the hospital underneath the bus. That well, I was going to say he, not so much that, but he kind of did say, put it in your chart that, you know, whatever, when this care happened, that there was, if it's true, that there were maybe some caveats to the care that were relevant. So if the care you provided was during the contrast shortage that you just state that factually, that if it was during the, you know, COVID pandemic, that that be stated. And maybe even just having in the note would prevent uh, an attorney from even taking the case because they would see, oh, we're going to run into this. And that might even save you the hassle down the line of having to, you know, hire an attorney to dig into it and kind of get you that far down the case. I mean, I would agree with that. I think if you, there's a contrast shortage and the contrast would have made the diagnosis easier, by all means, put it in. If you're holding an ICU patient in the ED for 48 hours and managing all the drips and everything that you'd have to do, I, that I would put in there. Patients stayed in the emergency department for a long period of time due to, uh, you know, uh, non-availability of critical care beds. Yeah, totally okay. I would just be careful, as you mentioned, about throwing stones. The other issue that came up here is uh, what's the chances of uh, the emergency physicians meeting with the uh, administration and telling them how dangerous you think the situation is without your your, your likelihood of getting fired? Because um, we've done another number of cases now where uh, people go to the CEO or thereabouts and talk about safety issues in the emergency department who are suddenly not in on the, the schedule next month. And, uh, you know, some of those have resulted in uh, lawsuits because it was uh, uh, felt to be due to uh, putting the patient in danger, et cetera, that kind of thing. Uh, any thoughts? Can you go to the CEO uh, when you have this situation? 
I mean, I've, I've, you know, I've been involved in contract management groups for a while. And, you know, I think if you do it in the right format and do it en masse and don't do it where it's, where it's threatening, but just say, we just want to give you a heads up to make sure you're aware X, Y, Z is going on. We're, we're here to help. We want to solve the problem. We're here for our patients. Mm-hmm. I think if you walk in with a threatening tone or do this or else, sometimes or else happens. You know, there's a well-known something out there. There's a friend of mine, Ping Lin, who, who, you know, went on social media and talked about the lack of PPE at a hospital up in Seattle and was terminated by his contract management group for that. And now that's in litigation. So there's clearly ways to do it. And I, I, I agree with what he did. And I think he was right. Um, but I think he also went down all the other avenues first before he said anything. Yeah, was there was a UC San Diego case where it was uh, pretty similar in terms of um, it, w- it was focused on PPE uh, equipment and the uh, person was found to be off the schedule basically, and they found a way to get his wife off the schedule as well. Uh, so, so I guess the idea is, I think it, I think it's honestly your responsibility. The emergency department director, I think, has a responsibility to say. These patients' uh, morbidity and, and, in some cases, their mortality will increase if you continue to uh, mandate that we hold these patients here. Uh, and there's lots and lots of literature that will will show that, and so it's kind of like it's only fair that you warn them that this is a problem going on down here, and and there's a lot of risk with regards to it's not just a matter of waiting; it's about of how they're these patients are going to do. So in Arizona, we have the anti-retaliation bill that was passed by Ami Shah that says that, you know, now it is illegal for somebody to be fired within six months of complaining about something like that, you know, something about a, a workplace safety issue, um, that it's there's kind of a presumption that the reason that they were terminated, if they were terminated within six months of a complaint, the presumption is that was the reason for their termination. And, you know, it has to be that the burden is on the employer to prove otherwise. And that's Arizona, I believe, is the one state that that's true in right now. And so ASAP has now picked that up and is trying to use it as kind of model legislation to be passed in other states. But as far as I know, we're, we're the one. Um, and in other states, we don't have those other protections. I remember when we were talking to Representative Shaw, you know, his point was there are lots of uh, settings where it's illegal for hospitals to terminate the employees, if they're, you know, from these whistleblower protections, if they say, Hey, we have a safety issue, the hospital can't turn around and say you're fired. But those same protections don't apply at the state level to these contract groups. They just, they, they don't apply to the private groups. And so that's where this kind of loophole was happening. And which is what he closed with this retaliation bill. But, but that same loophole exists in all these other states right now, which is an issue. Well, interestingly, uh, in the San Diego case, uh, although this person was an employee of the hospital, they made the they made the, the employee signed an agreement that he would be, uh, in essence, an at will employee who could be terminated at will, and so uh, which is kind of strange because you, you basically you're saying sign here to give up your rights uh, with regards to working here and and uh, appealing your uh the decisions that we've uh, made against you uh you give them up you you're your doctor we, if we don't want you here you don't stay and that's a really common thing in contracts right now is you know you sign away your due process rights hospitals may have written into their bylaws that you're going to have due process when it comes to termination but then at the same time anybody who's hired there as you know uh as a condition of their employment has to sign away those rights. And so again, ASA is lobbying at the national say, let's make those contract provisions no more, but I don't know if that's gotten much traction. John, what do you think about uh, giving up your employee rights to, uh, uh, you know, a hearing and all of those kinds of things versus by when you sign up, you give up those rights. I think it's worth pushing back um, and see if the see if the market I mean, so supply and demand issue. See if the market shifted where they'll 
you know, they'll let you push back on those issues and give you back your rights. But I think most of the groups are, sorry, that's the nature of the beast. Um, if the hospital wants you out, you're out. Yeah, I, that, that's pretty much true. Um, and and if, when that occurs, pretty much the group wants you out because you're now jeopardizing the contract. So you you get you you wind up getting no support. And I shouldn't say it's just ASAP. It's kind of all, the groups that are lobbying for this are kind of all the representatives of of emergency physicians and probably physicians in general. I just am not familiar with those, but it's you know ASAP, SAM, AAM. They've all kind of grouped together to say you know let's do contracts differently and are kind of. Um, trying to form a united front to ask for due process rights back in the contracts. Yeah, uh, I guess, John, you mentioned the idea of the, the group going to get together. Um, I, guess that, I guess that could be kind of intimidating uh, to uh, CEO or whatever. Um, so there may be, depending on how you relate with the CEO, maybe it could be uh, just a one-on-one. And, uh, but because um, you bring uh, eight eight people in, it's like, well, we're all in, we're all in sync. We all believe this to be true, with the hope that uh, with all of these eight people behind it, that there there it's not just one person's opinion that there's a risk down here. We're just trying to help you, sir. It would have to be done carefully. I mean, two people can go and you bring it, you know, send an email and says, here's all the things we think may could be improved. But you're right, you're walking a fine line and and you know, certainly hospital CEOs have been known to do things that aren't always in the best interest of the patients. Yeah, they may be just looking for an excuse. Uh they they had a prior uh, positive experience with some other contract management group and and you're on a hair trigger and bam, a goodbye. And you know, medical staffs do not stand behind ER docs who are being fired. That's that's my experience, um, and I've seen some really pretty. Um, you know, the, there's a virtually picket signs and a big meeting. It was held. Did it? Did it? Did it? But the, the the new group came in, so don't depend on the medical staff to come to your rescue. No. All right. I'm going to move on. If we yep. milk this thing. I was just going to say one more thing to consider about that is I think that people may think that they can negotiate this out of their contract and say, you know, I really want to have due process if I'm going to be terminated and they're going to try to negotiate with the medical group. But it may be that the hospital has demanded this as a clause in the, in the, like the hospital's contracting with the, mm-hmm the corporate group to staff their ED and the hospital has demanded from the corporate group. We want, we want there to be no due, due process for the, for the providers because it's a hospital that has to, you know, do this. And it might be like a year long process and it's expensive. So they don't want to have to undertake it. And so that's one of the things that they've requested from the group. So the group doesn't have any leeway to say yes to any individual. So there's really, you know, you're just going to hit a rock wall there if you're an individual provider, physician, whatever, trying to negotiate with that that group. Saying, you know, I'd really like to work here, but I want, you know, a particular part of the contract negotiated differently. It's just, it's not going to happen if that's the case. If the hospital has made that condition of you know, this group having that contract, absolutely nobody wants you to have due process. Right. <laughs> it's often driven by the hospital because they're the ones that are going to you know, often cost that. All right, what's uh what's up here next? Um Rachel, you want to tell us about suicidal children? Sure. So this was another uh question written into us by Tristan Simmons. One of the issues that was coming up in his ED was that they were having increasing numbers of suicidal children. I think this is something that we're all seeing. And you know, as we're have seeing interesting wait times for these kids. More and more, and the issue was arising that parents were coming in and saying, you know, this is getting excessive. I just want to take my kid home. And putting the patients in the middle of this kind of pickle of what do we do in the situation? You know, maybe parents are getting frustrated, just saying, just, just let me take them home. I'll take care of them. But you're worried about the kid. Uh, you know, what, how much do you fight that fight? What is your obligation there? What, what are the parents' rights? 
if you really believe that the, the child's suicidal, they're at risk, and maybe parent is really adamant that they're going to take them home, who has kind of the, the ultimate decision-making rights for the child? And you know, I think it's clear in this case that as the physician, if you're worried about the child, you have the responsibility for the child. No matter how much the parent wants to take them home, no matter how frustrated they are, no matter how long they've been there, if you're worried about the child, you have the ultimate responsibility for their safety, even if that you know, entails calling the police, calling CPS, reporting the parents for child endangerment, uh, you know, really getting, turning this into an altercation, if that's what it, it requires, you know, obviously you're trying to avoid that, but if, if things escalate, then, um, that's, that, that's potentially where this goes. I mean, my, my sense is, those are incredibly difficult situations. It involves a parent waiting for hours and hours and hours to get my child transferred or even a consult the emergency department. I too would probably be frustrated. The challenge is it puts a lot of onus on the emergency physician. My response has been um, trying to have a discussion with the family, use shared decision making, but then I've got to put my foot down. I'm, you know, I'm sorry to the transition. Um, I'm not going to bar the door. But if you leave with your child, I'm going to have to call CPS and likely the police and let and let them sort it out. But, you know, I think your child's at risk based on what your child and you told me. And I would document all that in the record. You, you, like I said, you can't throw yourself in front of the door. But I would do pretty much everything up to that. You know, one of the things that uh, we did a lecture in uh, our EMA course this year on uh, ketamine in, in the treatment of suicidal ideation. And um, it's really quite remarkable, uh, some of the success that has been shown. These are sub-dissociative doses of ketamine that are given over, you know, some people give it over 40 minutes, some people give it over five minutes. But um, the most recent study on this came out in, um, and I summarized it here in the notes, and you can see what happens in this chart that you'll see that uh, within literally one to two hours, this person uh, is markedly, markedly better uh, with this ketamine uh, subdissociative infusion. This is not the only paper that talks about it, but it's, it's one of the best methodologically done papers. And the goal of this was to see if they, uh, what was going to be the situation after three days was ketamine going to help you over three days? And this ketamine actually helped you helped you over two hours. Then it went pretty much asymptotic thereafter. So um, I know that there's a lot of people who work alone in in Indian reservations and the and the like, where getting a, a transfer for a psychiatric patient is nigh on impossible. Uh, there is literature supporting the use of this drug in this situation. You've all used doses of subdissociative ketamine, so you're real comfortable with it. And uh, my sense is that this is a pretty desperate situation, and uh, desperate situations will allow the, this uh, drug to be used. Um, yeah, it, it's off. People say it's off label. You know, well, it, that, that doesn't mean anything. Off label means that. Uh, the government has not allowed you to market it for this indication, that's all. Um, so if you have data that suggests that it may be helpful and you had a fairly desperate situation, honestly, I don't think I'd hesitate. I'm curious if this is, you know, is the idea that you give this and then you discharge them for outpatient follow-up? Or is it just to settle them while they're in the ED so they're well, less of a risk while they're awaiting you know, yeah, inpatient it may be, resources. It 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 may be just to ba basically calm down the um, situation by you can saying, listen, we have some treatment works in most people, uh, not all works in most people that I think can make your daughter feel a lot, a lot better. Let's um, let's give it. I'll tell you something about the pros and cons and. Um, I, I believe it's worth a try, and, and, and it, if it works, it, she'll feel rem remarkably better within a couple of hours. But it almost seems like then, you know, they're going to get assessed. Their suicidality would get reassessed, 
and then they're no longer suicidal and then they would get discharged. And then at some point this would wear off. And would that be kind of, you know, they would have kind of false reassurance from the assessment while they were on ketamine. Yeah, it does wear off. And sometimes uh, one doctor got in trouble. Uh, one year doctor got in trouble because he was in a rural area, gave ketamine, had a remarkable response, sent the, the woman home. And, you know, uh, three or four weeks later, she came back and he gave her ketamine again, had a, again, had a remarkable response, sent her home. And uh the psychiatrist somehow heard about this, what was going on, and they got um, uh, uh, disturbed. And, um, and and they said she should have gotten gone to a you know professional psychiatrist for an evaluation of this and treatment of this problem. But she did live a far long way from the town. You know whether she had transportation to the town was another issue. So it wasn't just that easy, but that doctor did get his hand slapped by the psychiatrist for doing this. Yeah. Um, from another point of view, you could say he did the best he could. You know, how, how's a jury going to look at that? You know? She's, well, how would they have looked at it if she'd gone home and five days later killed herself, I guess, is more of the case I'm envisioning, you know? Right. And I think they all, I think ultimately all of these cases, cases should, should be seen by a psychiatrist. Yeah. It's just, I, I mean, I think it's, it's a really promising case. It's just uh, probably, we just have to know a little bit more about kind of what the, how, how, when it wears off and how people feel at that point, as we figure out how to plug it into the system. It's usually weeks that it lasts. Yeah. Well, but, but enough of the d diversion. <laughs> but I, I, I was so impressed by the studies on it, and then yeah. out of the blue came this really well done uh, double blind trial, and uh, it, it it just showed that within hours, bam, these people felt. And some of these studies in the past past had looked at well a fifty percent reduction in suicidal ideation. This study said, heck, no, we want a 100% decrease in, in the suicidal ideation. So they put up a very high bar, and they did just fine, about two-thirds of the patients. Yeah, cool. I, I bet you I bet you, a year from now, this will be much more common than it is now, because right now it's not common at all. Do you mean like 17 years from now? Isn't that, long? Isn't that how long it takes for things to get into clinical practice? <laughs> Yeah, if you listen to Ken Milne, that's uh, the eleven. I think it's eleven. It's only eleven. Don't don't okay. don't exaggerate. All right, all right, all right, John. What you got? All right. So this case will all be near and dear to us. You know, I, we always had the adage of you know you're either in the emergency department seeing patients or, or you're in the emergency department as a patient, and it was. It just, you know, I think it's one of these unwritten rules that most of us have lived by our entire career. Like you don't, you know, nearly unless you're dying, you stay in work or or you come in to work your shift. And I've never seen a rule about it. Apparently there was a case or there's an issue with um, American physician partners. Uh, it was a Houston-based uh, physician who contracted COVID and tested positive and wanted to go home. And she was discouraged aggressively from doing that. And it was asserted that one of the APP directors said there's an unwritten policy of the four M's, Motrin, mask, man up, and must not test, which was the fourth M. Um, there's other issues that go along with this, but basically this physician, as well as a few others, are suing APP for these unethical business practices. Hmm. Yeah, they've thrown in a few other uh, 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 issues in there. It was kind of like, well, why are why are we're suing them? Let's <laughs> while while we're here, this. yeah, I got I got a, a couple of problems here. You know, they just put the put them all in this basket and said, "We're suing you for the basket full." Yeah, I, I can't say I don't know how to feel about it. I've, I've you know I've worked with kidney stones and other stuff, and I I guess it's just what we're all dumb enough to do because most of us say, well, we're not going to screw over our, our friends and partners by and leaving them 
hold in the fort, but you know, the days of COVID have changed all this. Uh, knock on wood, I'm still a COVID virgin, um, but the day ain't over. <laughs> well, you know, there are stories of our colleagues walking around with IV fluid uh, bottles uh, in, a, in, a, yeah. in a pole, walking around the yeah. department. I, you know, I'm sicker than you, lady. Yeah, I've worked with a saline lock in me and plugged in while I've been back charting. Uh, it was a, a bit ago, but yeah, that was just the way it was. I, I don't know if you're familiar with that uh, that uh, that unwritten rule, uh, Rachel. No, I, I think if I stub my toe, I don't have to go into work, right? That's how we millennials think. <laughs> No, Rick's no, always, I know a story Rick's about always digging you, on you us. Worship a dog. What's that? I said, I know the story. I've talked to your peers. You were sick as a dog and they forced you to go home and you literally left kicking and screaming. So don't, don't throw your millennial card at me. Sir. I know. Um, no, the, uh, I think, I feel like COVID changed things a little bit because like the government got involved, right? Like they mandated that, you know, if you have COVID, you, they mandated that employers pay you for that time off. And they like they got involved and kind of um, determined how employers would handle COVID time off. And so I think people do feel entitled to sick time and their treatment with COVID differently than they felt with other illnesses that were maybe more subjective. So I don't know. I'm trying to kind of understand why, you know, physicians would feel like they should have different treatment with COVID than with like the flu. Cause I think like we've all worked probably with the flu, um, or other febrile illnesses and never felt like, you know, how dare my colleagues, you know, expect me to work while I'm sick. That was never a thought before, but, but now it is. And I think maybe some of it is related to that, that there are, there are like these overarching rules related to COVID over over all employers including hospitals that's well, just yeah, kind of the, the idea here is uh yeah you might be sick but you may also give it to these uh innocent uh people yeah but is it really about that here i don't know i didn't oh you know i think it's there's two points of view one of them is that you know leaving the shift in the middle is a pain in the butt depending on how uh how leanly you're staffed and uh you know, is it a har is it harmful to work to the end of the shift? You know, just a couple of hours more, or if it's a couple of hours more, why can't you leave? It uh, would be another argument on it. But I think that the thing that's unique about this is exposing patients once you've known you've got this infection. And well, employees. And I, I think there's something to be said too for the fact that everyone's just like so overwhelmed and burned out about COVID, and it there's like when you get diagnosed with COVID, there's some like real moral injury that comes along with that. Like, oh my God, here we go again. Now I have to figure out childcare and am I going to isolate from my family and all of these things that come with seeing that positive diagnosis. And then when your employer's like, you better not go home. It's just this huge slap in the face that doesn't come along with like, oh, I have a headache or, you know, I'm coughing a lot. My nose is running that, you know, non-COVID illnesses have. And I think you know, we feel we should be supported more by our employers, especially given that we've been in this pandemic for, you know, three years and getting whipped by them in all sorts of ways. So I don't know. I think that there are lots of reasons why these physicians in this lawsuit were feeling more pissed about their treatment for a COVID specific illness than being asked to work with non-COVID illnesses for the rest of their careers. Let's I don't disagree. Here. I think it's a kind of a, I think it's a little bit of a tough case because there is, there, there clearly was this idea about not going home and, you know, nobody didn't come in for a cold or frying, you know, it's really amazing. The emergency department, nobody ever is out normally pre COVID. Nobody would ever be out sick. And unfortunately our nurse colleagues, you know, the weekend call in, it's not like, oh, you're killing me. Here comes, you know, there's, we're going to be three short or two short or whatever. And you could never do a damn thing about it. Um, but the, when you looked at it, the doctors never called in sick. It, it was, it was like, didn't happen. Or you got a substitute if, if, if that happened. But in any case, 
I think it also just feels so two-faced. Like when did we make a transition from being like, you know, stay away from everybody for two weeks to like, eh, just stay at work and just like, don't tell anybody, you know, like it. And then it feels like, oh, well, that's really convenient, you know, for you employer. It's just, and again, this is on top of years of just like, especially emergency physicians, just getting totally whipped and just you know, crushed by this and from all sorts of angles. So I feel like, you know, I understand the employer's point of view, like, okay, this is just getting old. We really, you know, need to deal with this in a different way, but, um, I don't know. I I don't, I'm not saying like legally, I have an opinion on how this should be managed, but I also think that they probably didn't respect the physicians maybe as much as they could have in the of my, my sense this was you know the death by a thousand cuts and this was the final straw and i'm yeah. sure as rick met things that they're already upset about and this was like i'm out and not only am i out we're going to push it right right okay john oh yeah we already did yours then what is the second part of that? Who got assigned to that anyway? Nobody. Oh, it's it's just really the issue that the, there's more to the suit than what was initially, you know, that has to do with um, reducing their pay, forcing them to sign contracts with non-compete clauses, you know, all the, all the usual fun stuff. All right. How about a $100 million a, uh, verdict? $111. So this, this is not an ER case, but it certainly could have been an ER case. The patient was a Nepalese immigrant. I'm going to stop there. Uh, I wrote a, I, I read a editorial that says, why do we pre present cases like this is a 47-year-old African-American, a male who was involved in a traffic accident, or this is a... Um, where where their ethnicity is coming presented uh, to you when in fact their ethnicity has got nothing to do with the price of eggs. But anyway, that's, that's kind of why I put that in there. I don't know what, I don't have any position on it either way, but I, but when you come to think of it, why did I say Nepalese uh, um, immigrant? My, am I painting a prejudice, uh, a, prejudicial picture perhaps, or am I showing some kind of a bias? Um, it's kind of like the way it's been done all the time, but people are saying, well, maybe you should take a look at what's been done all the time. Anyway, this fella hurt his leg playing uh, soccer. Uh, and it was, uh, he was taken uh, to the hospital. His leg was injured pretty badly. Uh, the ambulance took him to St. Cloud Hospital in St. Cloud, Minnesota. And uh, the on-call surgeon took care of the patient and let the ER doctor out of the case right away, which is clearly a break for the ER doctor. The, the surgeon operated and the patient was discharged that afternoon with a complaint of severe pain, numbness, burning, and muscle issues. Six days later, because of severe pain, the patient returned to the emergency department where a second orthopedic surgeon found, a surgery, found at surgery that the patient had a compartment syndrome. Over time, the patient had 20 operations because of ongoing pain and complications. He sued the orthopedic doctor and the PA who assisted in the first surgery. After a, a week-long trial, the jury awarded $100 million for pain, disability, disfigurement, embarrassment, and emotional distress. They added 10 million additional for past suffering and a little more than a million for past and future medical bills. Past and future medical bills are one, one million out of this $111 million suit. So at the time of the story, it was not known whether this was going to be appealed. It's hard to conceive that it would not be appealed but um, here's a case with $1 million medical bills for the future and $110 million for um, screwing up. 
I hear from malpractice companies that although the number of suits is down, the magnitude of the awards is up. Uh, this is a substantial award. I mean, the fellow has probably a, a pretty much not so functional leg, um, but 100 mil, 111 million. Any thoughts? Justice served here? My, my thoughts are yikes, but for the grace of God. Um, you know, I've looked at med mal suits for now 30 years and as an expert and then as an attorney, or I guess as an attorney as well, th this is, I think, one of the largest ones I've ever seen. Um, I've seen a couple other bigger, bigger ones, but this is, this is a bad one. And you wonder if there's more to it than this. You wonder if they wrote something disparaging in the chart or somehow yes. came across that they weren't, yeah, they, they weren't considered or kind or caring to this gentleman. And, you know, there's a lot of punitive damages heaped, heaped upon them. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bad leg. I get it. It was awful, but 111 million seems a bit excessive. Right. And it, it could very well be because, um, he was treated in a um, prejudicial manner or or the like uh, and people saying things that uh, they shouldn't have said and and disparaged the the patient and so this was one of those send a message guys that that's how i read it then you're right thank god the ed physician was uh the person who came into care of him right away because, and I'm surprised they didn't just name the ED physician as well. And maybe they did initially, but yeah. uh, uh, again, but for the grace of God. Well, this is going to be over limits for everybody's uh, insurance. Um, so it's going to be kind of sticky here. Do you think that these uh, attorneys want these people's houses? Yeah, they're, yeah. It's, it's going to be tough to collect it, obviously. And I know they have, I'm sure they have reinsurance, but I'm sure that's capped out at five or seven or 10 million. So this is a medical, uh, medical malpractice case here. The plaintiff alleged that the defendants, an emergency department resident and a surgical resident were negligent in failing to diagnose the descendants, decedents diverticulitis, which resulted in a fatal rupture of the diverticulum. That's called bad luck. The defendants denied that there were any deviations from the acceptable standard of care and disputed the, the uh, nature and extent of the plaintiff's alleged damages. So this is a 31-year-old. You wouldn't really think of uh, diverticulitis and a 31-year-old. Anyway, she pre presented an emergency department with complaints of fever, abdominal pain, and nausea that lasted more than eight hours. The plaintiff came under the care of the defendant emergency room uh, resident who noted pain in the left uh, upper quadrant and left flank. There was a differential diagnosis of diverticulitis, urinary tract infection, and, and, and colitis. The CT scan demonstrated diverticular disease of the colon, and the defendant ER resident consulted with the defendant surgical resident who ruled out diverticulitis based upon a second CT scan. What that, what's that about? The second CT scan demonstrated free fluid in the patient's right flank and a tiny bubble in the right uh, in the in the right uh, peritoneum, bubble of gas. The patient was discharged shortly afterwards without any surgical consultation. The patient died one week later. She was found in her mother's house, and an autopsy determined that the patient had a catch this four millimeter rupture of the diverticulum which was a uh, cause of her death. Four millimeter rupture. I mean, that's like a tiny, tiny hole. This lady had a lot of bad luck in her life. 31, diverticulitis. Same yeah, this is, a, this is a tough one. Was it... So the CT scan must have demonstrated diverticular disease without any free air or surrounding fat stranding. 
No, it showed free fluid and retroperitoneal gas. Well, oh, there, there's then, somewhere then in then here there were two it. CTs. Yeah, so it showed it showed diverticular disease, free fluid, retroperitoneal gas. I thought what was interesting about this is it was resident to resident. There was no attending involved. The defendants were an emergency department resident and a surgical resident. That's who did the decision making in this case. And I think that this was like an atypical presentation. She's 31. It's right sided. And they looked at this and were like, oh, let's send her home. And that ended up being a terrible decision. So probably the first CT was without contrast, as we talked about before. The second CT was with contrast. Yeah, I don't know why they wouldn't look at the second CT and say something's up. I mean, that's yeah, why so the there's always CT. more to these cases than than meets the eye. The, 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 um, the nuances that we would like to see are, are generally not there, but there are some take-home messages for sure. Um, women's abdomens, uh, you've got to... You know, women's abdomens can really mess you up. Uh, they can have all kinds of surprises going on in there. I mean, men are simple, you know. We keep we keep it simple. You you the women have decided to put all this complicated stuff down in there, and and here it is. We missed it. Thirty one years old, died of a ruptured diverticulum. Unbelievable. Six days later, maybe she should have come back sooner. But I think in general, you know, the, all these cases I sent you, they're about lawsuits regarding residents making decisions in the emergency department. And these are people that don't have mature decision-making heuristics. And you're seeing them here. You know, there's something off about this. She was young. It was right-sided. It wasn't a classic case. Um, and they kind of relied on on their decision-making and it led they, them astray. They relied on the law of averages. And there was no attending involved. There would have been attending named if they had, there had been one involved because obviously they would have gotten more money out of it um, or could have asked for more if there had been an attending anywhere on the chart and there wasn't. You know, it's kind of interesting at uh, USC Medical Center, they have an arrangement with CMS that the uh, attending staff do not have to do an examination on every patient. It's really quite unique. And so they 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 largely can just sit on stools in the department and and uh, be approached by any resident who's dealing with something and then they would talk about it or go see the patient. So it seems to be the a really nice way to see patients. This patient should have been seen by uh, an, a physician because residents are called residents for a reason. Um, and I think that women's abdomens, this, this, they got thrown for a loop here. And um, maybe, the, maybe she should have been asked to come back sooner if there was any new or worsening problems. Come back, we'll see you in two days kind of thing. Uh, or you see your doctor in two days. But six days later, uh, she basically came in uh, with, which was, and moribund. Now, John, have you seen this where they say 900 thousand dollars confidential recovery how, if it's confidential how come it says it's nine hundred thousand dollars well then why is it listed in the database that, that's a little unusual i yeah. was thinking that as well yeah. it, it, well there might have been more to recovery than nine hundred thousand as well you know just for the fact that an attending didn't sign off on the case it doesn't mean one shouldn't have signed off on the case so then you wonder if they didn't follow their own policies and procedures I mean, if I was a plaintiff's attorney, I would look at it that way and said, you know, you guys have attending there for a reason. You didn't present you didn't present it to him. That's that falls on you. That's still the hospital's issue. Um, I'd still, you know, I'd still pursue that. Nine hundred seems very light for this case, frankly, to a 31 year old woman mm -hmm. compared to 111 million for a messed up leg. Yeah. No justice. No justice. All right, you want to do a bad sore throat? Bad another sore one throat. That'll scare you. Bring on bad sore throat. So, yep, so mom brings her seven-year-old to an urgent care clinic with fever and a headache, nasal discharge, uh, who recommended they go to the emergency department, which seems a little odd because this is something you would think most urgent cares would, unless the kid really looked ill, most urgent cares would say, great. 
Um, they go to the um, hospital and they're seen by a pediatric emergency medicine um, uh, physician and a resident. Um, the mom, the mom argued that the providers did not note the nasal discharge or history, noted only heart tachycardia, uh, and the child became sleepy after the child was given Motrin and discharge. Uh, child returned to the hospital a few days later with altered mental status, unsteady gait, nasal discharge still, and was transferred to the hospital's pediatric ICU and later to another hospital, and ultimately had a stroke, peritonsillar abscess, pan-sinusitis, meningitis, Lemire syndrome, uh, and, and secondary septic emboli, and ultimately brain damage, right hemiparesis, and permanent blindness. Now, that doesn't wake you up on your, it's only a sore throat, only sinusitis, mental status, uh, nothing well. Yeah, it's one of those cases where it, st it starts off pretty benignly for sure. And I guess one of the things that uh, it brings up is the necessity for follow-up if there's any new or worsening symptoms or it, or even a, a follow-up that is very specific. I, I, we want you to see Dr. Jones in two days and see how, the, um, I mean, I think we refer, refer a lot of people to follow-up visits who don't need it. But I think that in this case, maybe it would have been a good idea. Well, I think it would have clearly been a good idea uh, to have another doctor see her in a short period of time to see she, how she was doing. Yeah, this one's scary. This I'm not true. sure what you learned from this one because this, go ahead. This, the, you know what you learn from this one is don't go to work. <laughs> <laughs> you learn. The, the, now tell me, if this my assessment here is correct, so I work at a regular emergency department, at level one, big center, and we used to see a ton of kids. Now we're probably down to 20% kids we see because they all go down the street to this children's hospital. And so what I find myself doing is I probably overwork up and, you know, Greg Henry will flip when he hears this, but I probably overwork up kids because, not because of this particular case, obviously, but just because I feel like my sensitivity now is is higher because I want to make sure I don't miss something. And we, when we send these kids to the peds urgent care, a lot of times they're like, ah, the kid's fine. And they see a lot more kids than I do. So they've had a better frame of reference. So you wonder if some kid comes in with a runny nose and a little bit of a sore throat and a little bit of a headache and, and the kid finally feels better. So he gets sleepy after Tylenol and Motrin that there's like, yeah, kids got a viral syndrome, kid will do fine, like 999 other kids do out of 1,000. Um, and this kid just unfortunately got this Lemire syndrome, which is pretty darn rare, and just totally decompensated. Yeah, this is a, a progression of an illness that could not really be anticipated from the initial visit. And so I don't think doctors could necessarily beat themselves up on this. I think the key would have been what kind of follow-up would, would, was being requested. And, you know, there's also, there's, we don't know all of the details on these. We, we, we get this brief summary. So it's hard to kind of get into, into the weeds on these cases. And but, I think, go ahead. I was going to say, I think this is where documentation can help you a little bit. I mean, this is, one where if you document essentially nothing, cause you're just not worried about this kid, you know, kid with a viral URI, you know, normal vitals, well appearing sent home with conservative care. It's not going to help you when he comes back like this, but if you document, you know, you looked at his ears and you looked in his throat and he's got, he's interacting normally and got a normal cranial nerve exam, you know, that's going to prevent you from looking like you just, you know, that you were neglected, the exam when he first came in, which is essentially the mother's allegation here. So, you know, you spending two minutes on his chart instead of 30 seconds can, can prevent you from, you know, biting the bullet here. And I'm not advocating that you, you know, are charting up the wazoo for every single patient. And obviously this patient is one who apparently looked fine and you weren't worried about. So obviously like you shouldn't be wasting all of your time charting on otherwise well-appearing patients. But I think sometimes we do kind of get in the habit of under charting. And this speaks to kind of the necessity of just kind of maintaining 
normal charting practices. Like you want to do an appropriate chart, even on somebody that you're not worried about, because if they happen to come back and have a bizarre outcome like this, you want to prove that, yes, I did my due diligence and I did actually look at this kid and I did actually examine him and he did actually look okay when I saw him. And I wasn't, I didn't just neglect him and stare at him, you know, from the doorway. I wasn't being a bad doctor that day. And a, a decent chart will prove that point. Agreed. Well, in our younger years, John and I would see patients who had um, an initial visit to the uh, ER. Maybe uh, these are kids who are like three or four. And uh, they were looked okay. They had a fever. Uh, maybe it was source unknown. Maybe it was blamed on a cold. Who knows? But the child was discharged and subsequently uh, developed meningitis. So the always the question was, well, was the meningitis there when the person first went to the emergency department, and did you miss it, or it wasn't there then, but it evolved over time, and 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 it was there on day three. Um, and so were you a bad doctor or were you a, did you do a good, a good job? <coughs> and, and, and this meningitis um, <coughs> came on afterwards. Uh, uh, so, and that was a common kind of thing because meningitis was pretty common back in, the, in those days. And so that was our fear that a kid with a source unknown fever uh, maybe they had meningitis or were going to develop meningitis. And so we were, we were kind of spooked by that diagnosis. Then. Well, meningitis is gone now. So we don't, we don't worry about that anymore. <laughs> I, I tapped somebody yesterday on that same premise. Like, uh, I don't know where this is going to end up, but I'm going to stick a needle in your back to prove you don't have it now. Yeah. All right. Let's talk so about the scariest. Other cases. All right. All right. This is about a syncopalness, uh, worst understanding, possible seizure. And uh, Rebecca Clark Bauman, 22 year old uh, married female. See, why do we add married in there? Married female with two because minor of children. Her, because of her kids and loss of consortium. <laughs> it increases married. her worth. Mar <laughs> Your children her damage. How do you like that? I'm glad you I'm glad you said that, Rachel. <laughs> That's exactly right. All right. This 22-year-old <laughs> married woman with two minor children presented to the emergency department at Brook Army Medical Center, interestingly enough. In September of 1999, she reported a vague history of seizure and presented with complaints of dizziness, worse upon standing, and an episode that occurred that they that day described as dropping to her knees with her head in the laundry basket. After the episode, she had a verbal response immediately and only some head shaking. She was evaluated by the medical student and resident at Brook Army Medical Center who felt it was a highly likely, it was highly unlikely that this was a seizure in view of her good recovery. Her pulse was noted to be slow. Her discharge diagnosis was vasovagal syncope. Uh, plaintiffs alleged an electrocardiogram was indicated, which, uh, which is a non-invasive, inexpensive, and reliable uh, test that, if performed on Rebecca at that time, would have most certainly have diagnosed her long QT uh, syndrome. Again, in the early morning of, of a few days later, Rebecca Bauman was transported by ambulance to Brook Army Medical Center again. During the EMS transport, the EMS officers obtained a rhythm strip of Rebecca's heart, which clearly uh, suggested long QT. Again, the residents at Brook Army Medical Center noted Rebecca was 100% normal upon arrival and questioned if an actual seizure had taken place. Despite strong indications that Rebecca Bauman may have experienced a cardiac cause for her fainting. She was released from Brook Armory Medical Center without an EKG. She's there twice now, no EKG. It is undisputed and it is now known for certain that Rebecca Bauman was born with congenital disorder of her heart known as long QT, QT syndrome. The familiar disorder causes syncope fainting and is not diagnosed and treated. It can result in serious brain injury or sudden death. 
long QT interval is diagnosed by the use of a 12-lead electrocardiogram. No EKG was provided, Rebecca Bauman, on either of these emergency room visits. On the late evening hours of, a, uh, of uh, some other date and the morning and the, and the early morning hours of the next date, Rebecca complained to her siblings that she was afraid to go to sleep for fear she would not wake up and felt like her heart was beating strangely. She expressed her fear that if she returned to Brook Armory Medical Center, they'd let her go again or, or no, they'd let her die either one. Uh, therefore, Rebecca Bauman and her two sisters presented to Northeast Medical Center, a better hospital at approximately two in the morning. Rebecca and her sister Elizabeth told the triage nurse, my heart is not beating right. I am unable to breathe and I feel like I'm dying. Although the this frightening history was recorded by the triage nurse and entered into the Meditech system at Northeast Medi um, Methodist Hospital, the Meditech system deleted from the ominous history the most germane portions of the patient's complaints. Specifically deleted was Rebecca's foreboding history. I do not know what's wrong with me. I feel like I, my heart is not beating right. I feel like I'm going to die. The patient is tearful. I feel like I'm dying. So this is a long story here. All right. So now I'll spice it up. Um, <laughs> so this is her third visit, kind of the same thing. So they take her back. She's now gone to a second ED because the first one was screwing things up, never got an EKG. So she went in, basically said, it's my heart. It's bothering me. So she went in to get her EKG and instead they put her in a room, labeled her as having anxiety. She saw the doctor who never heard anything about her cardiac complaints, gave her some type of tranquilizer and sent her home. She went home um, and went to her parents' house, actually, because she was still feeling unwell. They basically tucked her into bed and checked on her in the morning. And she was unresponsive, having... Um, basically unresponsive, pulseless, apneic. They did CPR on her, brought her back into the hospital where they uh, resuscitated her. Finally, at that point, diagnosed her with what was her issue all along, which was prolonged QT. Uh, after the resuscitation, she did wake up at some point, though, with significant uh, permanent brain injury, anoxic brain injury. Uh, and basically, family sued saying, you know, what atrocious care, basically, you know, she came in with this history of questionable seizures. Although when she, when she presented, you guys even said, these are not seizures. These are syncopal episodes, but you never got an EKG for her unprovoked syncopal episodes and just sent her home. And if you would have, you would have quickly diagnosed her prolonged QT. And actually when she came in by ambulance, you know, the diagnosis of prolonged QT was there on the rhythm strip, but you never bothered to look at it. Um, and so when they brought all this to court, uh, court agreed with her and ended up um, with loss of consortium earnings, yada, yada, total damages of about $17 million for, you know, the, the care of the person who's now alive, but severely brain damaged. And that just, you know, reminder for long QT, this is something that is not all that uncommon, actually. There's several different types of long QT. The uh, the most common one actually is tachycardia induced. So we think of it as manifesting when people are physically active. And interestingly, it's often not visible when people have a normal heart rate. It only comes out on EKG when people are tachycardic. So I had an interesting case the other day of like a teenager who had COVID. And so she was febrile and she had syncopal episodes, you know, while she was sick. And so she came in her initial heart, it was like in the one forties and she had long QT. And then by the time she gotten back, you know, I'd ordered Tylenol and such for her in the waiting room. And so her heart rate was down to like 90 and she didn't have long QT anymore, but it was really long, you know, and it was one forty her QTC. And so she ended up getting admitted to cardiology for workup of like type one long QT, even though it was not apparent on her EKG with a normal heart rate, because it just, it doesn't manifest unless she's, unless they're tachycardic. So it's a really tricky diagnosis, some of these forms to pick up. Um, and it's very much a clinical thing. So uh, while you can get clues from the EKG, you definitely can't rely on that solely. 
but this person's history really, you know, was obvious. Yeah. yeah. Well, an upshot obviously was it was obvious you needed an EKG. I mean, yeah. that part's obvious. Yes. Yeah, three times obvious. It's, it's right. kind of hard to conceive that um, that that would not have been done because you have you have to consider abnormal uh, heart rhythms causing some kind of syncopalness. Um, and there's a really a very characteristic syncopalness associated with abnormal heart rhythms. It's like you go down without warning. You just kind of right. Um, <laughs> I uh, I had some atrial fibrillation one time, and I went to this doctor, and and, and he said, "Well, what what about the pill in the pocket? Have you heard about the pill in the pocket?" So he gave me two of these uh, flecainides or propafenones or whatever the heck they were. And I was doing a course in uh, Hilton Head, and I woke up in atrial fibrillation. So I got up. My, I was about to give one of my lectures, and uh, but I, but I was so I said I I popped a couple of these pills right before the lecture. Not too smart. In the lecture, I basically went. Uh, I was giving it no premonition of anything. Out cold fell backwards against the, the table where we do our kind of little commentaries. And, uh, and, and I think I still feel it right there, you know, uh, and this is probably 15 years ago, but it was, I, I got up, continued the lecture and just told them I demonstrated to them cardiac syncope. And I remember what that looks like. Another thing to point out about the long QT is that I think people think because it's genetic, like these people are going to be diagnosed with it, you know, in adulthood, but a lot of these forms don't manifest until adulthood, you know, late teens, twenties, thirties. So the fact that this is only showing up in this person's twenties or thirties, however old she was, that's actually pretty typical. So um, emergency physicians might think, oh, this isn't some, a diagnosis I'm going to make. This is something this person would have had, you know, carrying with them from their pediatrics days. That's just not true. Nine-day trial, one-day deliberation. Look at the allocations of, of, of the uh, payments of this person. Uh, we'll, we'll include those in the show notes uh, just for fun because uh, we've not done that before. And there's a little bit hidden here about long QT just for your edification and glory. But <clears throat> they had about 20 awards that they gave this lady for everything that you can think of. They gave her fast loss of household services, future loss of household services, past loss of consortium, future loss of consortium. Past loss of parental consortium. I mean, anybody you can consort with, you're going to get some money here. They gave more money to each kid for loss of consortium than they did to the husband. Which I think is <laughs> they appropriate. gave more to the kids than the husband? Yeah, kids each got a million dollars for future loss of consortium, and the husband only got 750000 Well, What the heck does that say? All right. I think it's appropriate. <laughs> you would, you would. Thank you very much, um, guys. I think that's about it for this month. Any, uh, any comments, questions? No, I just hope I stir. I hope I did Greg proud. You done good. You done. You done good. And Rachel, do you have anything exciting that you can tell us about your activities coming up, or what, uh, rather than a week and night shifts? <laughs> We're uh, we're setting up our house in Minnesota, so we have a little um, summer getaway up there. And everyone's making fun of me for it. Everyone down here is telling me I need to find a different place to get away to. You would, you're coming back to your homeland. Yeah, they're like Rochester of all places. What are you thinking? But is your dad going with you? Um, this time he is. Because I needed some uh, help with childcare. I thought you needed some help with construction. Oh, 
Okay. Well, yard work, maybe. John, and you're having an exciting afternoon. You're going to be flying to uh, Rosebud. Uh, Pine Ridge. Headed out to uh, Pine Ridge in a few hours here to work through Monday. Just living the dream. <laughs> take care, guys. Thanks so much for participating. Thank you, Rich. Appreciate it, Rich. Take care. Bye-bye. Nice see you, John. Bye.